Hello listeners, welcome back to Champs of the Lit with Mark and Max. I'm Max, and today I'm by myself. I wanted to record a brief intro to this week's episode, just to give you all a little update on the podcast and where it stands. As you may or may not have noticed, it's been quite some time since Mark and I last released an episode, about mid-October. And I know uh, people have been asking why. Uh, Complete strangers have been stopping me in the street, demanding to know, where is my episode of Champs at the Lit? And uh, they've been protesting, protesting at my home, at Mark's home. And it's really, it's gone too far. So I just want to make things clear at the top of the episode. So Mark and I, we recorded this episode uh, back in the fall and planned on releasing it in mid-November, but then I got very busy at work, Uh, Mark had a baby, and now it's mid-March, and we're finally about to release episode 8 of Champs of the Lit, or I guess we've already released episode 8, since that's what you're currently listening to. Going forward, uh, there will at least be one more episode of our podcast, because Mark and I have already recorded another episode. And after that, uh, Mark and I, we have talked about doing some more recordings. Uh, We have a couple book ideas, uh, but we have no real definite time frame for when we might do those recordings and release them. But I guess just watch this space. Uh, There will at least be one, possibly more, episodes coming down the podcast pipeline. Alright folks, uh, thank you very much for listening to me ramble. I really appreciate it. And I hope you all enjoy this episode and have a a tremendous day uh, filled with splendor. Champs at the Lit with Mark and Max. I'm Max, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mark. Mark. Hello. Hello. (laughs) I am also Uh, here. And Mark is also here. Um, This is episode eight. Today we're going to be talking about the book The Reluctant Fundamentalist by Moshin Hamid. Um, Why'd you laugh? Is that not how you pronounce his name? I think you you swapped the H and the S. It's Mohsin. 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 Mr. Hamid. Yes. Um, Okay, so briefly, this book was published in 2008 by Penguin. Um, It was shortlisted for the Booker. It's uh, Hamid's uh, second book. It's pretty short. It's only 209 pages. It took him seven years to write. Um, his debut novel, Mosmo, came out in 2000, and I believe he had, like, a draft for this book, like, around the time that Mosmo was published, but it took him another seven years to finalize it, and it reached the, uh, number four spot on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Mark, do you want to tell us about the protagonist of the story, Mr. Uh, Cengiz? Yes, it's about Cengiz, um, who is from uh like 
I think relatively well-to-do family in Lahore. He's Pakistani. Um, you know, I think his he wanted his parents as a doctor. Um, so kind of like, you know, upper middle class uh, or upper class, uh, but not the sort of super elite of the country. Uh, he gets into Princeton and um, then has graduated by the time the book starts. He talks a little bit about Princeton, uh, but then most of the, the book is about after he graduates, he gets a job with uh, an elite like boutique firm that evaluates companies or I guess values companies for whether, you know, mergers and acquisitions. That seems to be the primary thing is for mergers and acquisitions. It's called Underwood Samson. Um, and so in he like meets another girl from Princeton right after graduating. Uh, they go on like a trip to Greece. Um, and uh, her name is yeah, Erica. Like, and they uh, develop a group, a group trip. Yeah, yeah. There's like a group trip that he's on. Someone invites him and uh, from one of the like elite eating clubs at Princeton. He's sort of the hanger on because he's exotic. Uh, and then uh, he, he, he meets Erica um and they kind of fall for each other to some degree this seems to be a pretty central drama to the story um so he's like having these this sort of relationship with erica he's working at this firm and then 9 11 happens and uh you know obviously living in new york as a pakistani um there's he has a variety of different feelings and different reactions that he elicits from other people things in pakistan back home aren't going particularly well um so near the end of the book he all of this kind of like gets to him in a series of crises and he starts refusing to work, gets fired, moves back home to Lahore, uh, becomes a university lecturer in Lahore and starts kind of mentoring people and then becomes involved in some form of like anti-American resistance or protests. Um, yeah. And um, it has a pretty unique form. Um, so the story is told, it's a dramatic monologue. I guess is the the literary term for it, but it, it's told as a conversation between Chengiz and an unnamed uh, American, and they're at a uh, cafe in Lahore, and uh, this American one assumes he's maybe some sort of CIA agent or yeah. intelligence officer. It's 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 definitely never explicitly stated, and we can uh, we can talk about that later on, uh, but we never we never know the name of the American. The American doesn't say anything. Um, it's, yeah, the reader it's... sort of stands in for the American mm -hmm. to some degree because the whole thing is written in the second person. So he's saying you and he's 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 telling this story to a person. And then there's like weird asides, not like weird, but like there's asides where he's like, oh, let's order dinner now. They're like at a cafe mm -hmm. and they're hanging out and then they go for a walk. And so, yeah. And he's sort of like instructing the American, the uh, the uh, the American and sort of Lahori culture and, you know. This is how you eat this thing. This is, you know, these women that you see dressed in this way. This is this is why they're dressed in that way. Things like that. Right. Um, and uh, something I picked up in interviews that he did around the time this this book came out is that he he based the structure of the book on um, the book The Fall by uh, Camus, um, which I listened to this morning while I was at work because <laughs> I'm a a diligent preparer. Um, yeah, far yeah, more than I am. It's very, it's a never, the, the fall is a, it's an even shorter book than um, The Reluctant Fundamentalist. And yes, it's structured in exactly the same way. You have uh, a narrator um, who's talking to um, an unnamed uh, interlocutor that never speaks during the, uh, the, during the story. It takes place in Amsterdam huh. at a cafe. I think one of the differences is that it, it, it takes place over a number of days, maybe like two or three days. Um, and it's more, I mean, the, the story of the reluctant fundamentalist is a pretty like straightforward standard story. 
although it's told in a you know kind of unique way and then there are these asides where he's interacting with his uh non-speaking uh american companion right. um but the the fall by camus it's much more i don't i don't know kind of metaphysical in a way maybe is the best way to describe it as more that, just that, that like, tracks for camus <laughs> there's, there's there's like kind of a story that he's telling the 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 main characters like talking about his life and his sort of like abandonment of his principles as a he's a warrior and and things like that but it's definitely not as straightforward a, a story but you can you can certainly see um what uh hamid uh, borrowed from from the fall by camus interesting mm-hmm. yeah and the final thing final couple things to say are is that we really don't have a definite sort of conclusion for the story we can we can talk about that later but there's there's maybe an altercation between the American and Chengiz, but that's not that's not totally clear, and it's also like the the story that Chengiz tells about his life is pretty brief. It's like a six to eight month stint that he spent in New York City, working for Underwood Sampson. Yep, and that's like the bulk of the story. Although he talks a little bit about his time at Princeton and then his time back home in Lahore when he when he moves back to Pakistan. Um, but it's kind of nice in that like. The, the conversation between the unnamed American and Chang'e's, it, it's, it probably takes place like in about the same amount of time that you could read this book. You know, it's like a three yeah, or four hour true. read, you know. So there's a nice kind of symmetry between the structure of the book and yeah. what's was, happening was, in the book. It was nice to do a shorter book after several like 800 page books for this podcast. That's right. Uh, uh, we're this, gonna... this was very digestible. So yeah. for those of you looking to follow along, <laughs> this might be one you would actually want to read. That's right. And uh, and that seems true also of uh, of his other work um, that I've read. They're all pretty short. Like yeah, yeah. So the books. only other one I've read is Exit West, which I think you haven't read. It sounds like. No, I've read Exit West. Oh, you, you did t- read Exit West. Okay. M- Mark told me about Exit West. This was probably at least like a year and a half, maybe two years ago, and I listened to it. I think we talked a little bit about it, but. Yeah, what's um, funny is that I'd, I've heard of Exit West and I'd heard of The Reluctant Fundamentalist, and I don't think I realized until starting this book that they were written by the same people. Yeah, I mean, or the Mark, same person. Mark suggested that we could do The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Didn't you say your, your dad had listened to it or read it? Yeah, really yeah, liked he, it? he likes the book quite a bit. Yeah, and I didn't, I also, I simil- similarly, similarly, <laughs> similarly, I also, so, similarly, <laughs> I also did not realize it was the same author that. I don't. I don't think I even realized until like after I had listened to it and then was looking some stuff up about um, Mohsen Hamid. And I was like, oh, this is this is the same guy. Um, okay, Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Hamid and his uh, background? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll be quick here. He was he was born 1971, um, so he's now about 50. Uh, he lived in the U.S. from ages three to nine, and then went back to Lahore, where he's from. Similar just like our protagonist yeah his, he also attended dad, princeton his dad was i think he was a grad student at us uh, that's right stanford so he yeah. was out out on the west coast initially yeah and like i think um, when he you know like when he moved back to lahore he had no like i don't think he knew urdu or anything maybe he knew a little bit but like yeah, you know, english was his primary much. language and so it was kind of a like culture shock to you know go back to pakistan but then yeah. he spends enough time in pakistan that when he comes back to princeton you know i'm sure it was uh you know, another kind of culture shock again. Yeah, it's true. And we, so, yeah, starting with Princeton, his his life is pretty parallel to um, Chang'e's. Mm-hmm. So he goes to Princeton undergrad, uh, 
then goes to law school at Harvard, and then he works for McKinsey in New York City, uh, which, as we'll discuss, is very similar to Underwood Sampson. And then he moves to London in 2001, uh, ends up getting dual citizenship. He, I think at, at some point he, he started working with a brand consultancy um, and then became their first ever, quote unquote, chief storytelling officer, which is a very brand consultancy kind of title. Uh, yeah. it's, not, it's not clear. We weren't sure if he still works there or if he's just a full-time novelist. I feel like he could be a full-time novelist now if he wants to be. No, I, see, I think he still works there. And I'm just saying you know, he, can, he probably doesn't have to financially. Sure, but, but he, he publishes so infrequently. He's only written four novels yeah, um, that's fair. over like 20 years of writing. And his first novel, um, Moth Smoke, he wrote while he was working at McKinsey. I guess he was like given time off like every year at McKinsey, like three months every year to write. And that's how he uh, that's how he wrote the book. And um, yeah, there's I'll include this in we'll include this in the show notes. But there's an article that he like an interview article on Fast Company about his role as the chief storyteller officer and. It's kind of interesting. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it provides a certain insight into him as like an author, and you know why uh, why he wrote uh, the Changes character in a way. Yeah, you know, very, very, very parallel to his own life. I would think. Yeah. So, although, the, although maybe don't take that too far, because I know there was one interview I was listening to where he explicitly stated that, like, uh, you know, he's not Changes, and the character, you know, Changes, his reactions to events like nine eleven, for instance, they're not the author's, you know, reactions. So, yeah, I'm not I think it, it could be to give that caveat. Yeah, but it, you know, I think it could be easy to say, oh, well, you know, this fictional character and this author, they have basically the same life <laughs> in a lot of respects. Right. So it must be that everything that the, he says the, is representative yeah. of the author's views. Yeah, right, and that's, uh, that's certainly not the case. Yeah, so I think the this book very much surprised me. Uh, the title is The Reluctant Fundamentalist, uh, which I think led me to believe it was going to be about things that it was not, in fact, about. Uh, <laughs> Religious fundamentalism. Yes, uh, to be precise. Uh, I knew it was about a Pakistani guy, and I thought that the book was going to be about his sort of evolution of views and the series of events that led him to uh, become a fundamentalist. Now, there is like a kernel of truth there, right? Because his views do seem to evolve from like admiration and appreciation for America and sort of a desire to um, rise and fit in in American society to kind of a rejection of America and its role in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not that extreme and there's no fundamentalism involved. <laughs> there's no religion really involved. Uh, so I don't know, maybe he didn't choose the title, but the title just, and the the other thing I guess that really threw me off was that like the whole Erica story is like maybe at least half the book is this relationship he has with Erica and trying to understand it. And as far as I can tell, there's not really any bearing on fundamentalism or like the broader, like these sort of geopolitical themes. It's just yeah. a like standard, not standard, but it's like a, you know, sort of love story. Yeah, just as a love I mean. Story. You could you could sort of see. I mean, this is a this is a fictional world, obviously. But if in this fictional world things work out for Chengiz and Erica, you know, he stays in America and doesn't go, you know, doesn't go back to Pakistan. And right. His views about America maybe don't shift so uh, uh, so significantly. Um, I think uh, I think Mark is definitely right. There's um, you know, Chengiz is he's not religious, and I that's that's kind of true of you know. Of the, I've I've listened to three books by uh, Hamid, and they all center around young sort of protagonists. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, they, they always kind of reject uh, the sort of um, like there's a there's no real like serious discussion about like religious devotion or you know it's it's almost like always parried in parry deed in his books. Um, but like get, I guess getting back to the book at hand, uh, he 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 <laughs> like drinks drinks alcohol. He has sex. He like never mentions praying. Never goes to a mosque or anything. The like sort of his protest that feels sort of fundamentalist is that he like grows a beard um and yeah. you know shows up for work and nobody else has a beard and during the days just after 9-11 like being a you know south asian person with a beard walking around he gets a lot of comments and people aren't you know especially pleased yeah. by it yeah his, his colleagues start looking at him suspiciously or at least that's how he perceives it yeah uh, but it's a like far cry from like genuine fundamentalism or just like any kind of religiosity it's it's not it's not tied to god yeah um i i think there uh, this could be a stretch but i think there's a way in which you could interpret um you know he, he's a certain type of fundamentalist in or he becomes a certain or he becomes a critic of a certain type of fundamentalism and that's like a, a capitalist fundamentalism represented by a company like underwood samson and like when he goes back like at the end of the book when he goes back to Lahore becomes a university lecturer. He he says explicitly um, that like he becomes a lecturer and he's sharing his what he calls his ex janissary skills, um, in particular in finance, to help his students. Um, so I, I think there's a there's a certain way in which, and, and like uh, Underwood Sampson is I don't you know I have no idea like how accurate it is of a, a sort of representation of um, that type of. Uh, company but i mean yeah it is a very capitalist place they're obsessed with efficiency they don't care about sort of individual humans or emotions it's all yeah. about calculations and yeah. being rational they don't care and... about what happens to the companies that they're evaluating right it's about maximizing you know the value of the company for the right. person that's hiring them to evaluate it you right know. and there's this sense that i mean at, at one point one of his colleagues because he, he sort of has some qualms about it, one of his colleagues is like well if we didn't do it someone else would um, yeah that you know it's like like the market has demands demands must be met um so it, yeah it definitely is part of it's sort of deeply embedded in the logic of capitalism but um i mean it's not clear to me how much of that he rejects because he's still like teaching finance it seems like he's mostly just upset about like america's foreign policy as opposed to like the fundamental economic system sure but i do think um so there's there's a quote I pulled, and this is from the end of the book, that um, I reflected that I had always resented America's conduct in the world. Your intervention was insufferable, um, alternating it's like alternating between periods of aid and sanctions. And right. then he goes on to talk about how like finance is like one of the primary weapons in the U.S. sort of arsenal to coerce you know other countries like Pakistan into doing what what it wants, and. So I think there's a certain sense in which, you know, he's by the end of the book, he's obviously like rejecting, I don't know, America or American values as he as he perceives them. But there's still maybe some part of him that, you know, I don't know uh, admires America or, you know, valued his time in New York City, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's not like he's like um, a total rejection of, I guess, the West and America and that sort of thing. That right. makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that'd be interesting. I, I wonder if he did, I wonder if Hamid did choose the title or if that was something that the publishers do. Right, the publishers do, yeah. But, but I don't know. I mean, it's it's not like it's, 
like literally the word fundamentalism is never used in it. I don't know. Like it was just, it just feels like a non sequitur. And like, I think, I think I liked the book a lot. Uh, I would recommend it, but it is not the book that I thought it was. And that's always like a little <laughs> bit annoying when you go into a book thinking it's something in particular. And then you spend a lot of the book like waiting for that thing to happen, right? Like, like if you read a book thinking it's a murder mystery, your brain, like in the back of your brain the whole time, you're going to be like, well, who's going to die? And when are they going to die? And you're like spending mental energy looking out for that. And like, it just, you know, there was no death. There was like no fundamentalism. He never, he, he, he did. Yeah. It, it wasn't totally off in the sense that he did have a change of views and come to uh, criticize the West, but he didn't become a fundamentalist. Anyway, I'll, I'll get off my hobby horse now. Uh, or I guess stop beating this dead horse. And uh, <laughs> I think the, one of the main turning points in the book, or I guess the turning point for his kind of perception of the U S is nine 11 right? That he uh, initially really likes New York City. He feels really at home there. He It's really diverse. He can walk mm -hmm. around. Uh, and he kind of has this idea that like, I, like my family has, have, we've lost our prestige back in Pakistan, but like maybe there's a place for me here. Maybe this is a place where like I can climb the ladder and be a, a person of some kind of importance or, you know, feel like I belong in this world. Yeah. He, I mean, he describes his like experience of coming to New York City as like, you know, when he was at Princeton, he always felt like he was an outsider. Yeah. Um, but almost like immediately upon moving to New York City, he feels at home and, um, you know, part, you know, like he fits in. Into the yeah. And part of this is at work, right? That he's he's a very formal person. He's extremely polite and he speaks in, you know, he's got a British accent. And he speaks very eloquently in these kind of like formal, if you would, you know, mm -hmm. would you please uh, kind of phrases. And so I think like in college that didn't do him a lot of favors, right? He, he talks about how his formality made it hard for him to get close to peers or people thought he was kind of weird, but like at work, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, like everybody massive. loves him at work because he's not casual. He's, <laughs> he's very formal and he treats people with a lot of respect and they appreciate that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, in, to, to specifically spell it out. Um, so he's visiting, I believe he, he's visiting Pac. No, I think he, he's in Manila when 9-11 yeah. happens. He's on a business trip to the Philippines when 9-11 happens. He's watching it unfold on TV. And his reaction is that he, he smiles. <laughs> uh, and he has this sense of, it's a sense of satisfaction that somebody's taken America down a peg. Yeah. Um, and there was an interview that he, uh, the author, Hamid, did on the BBC. And, you know, he... he he was asked about this part in his book. And so he made clear that, uh, you know, his reaction to 9-11 was not Cengiz's reaction, but he thought that Cengiz's reaction was not like uncommon uh, in the world. Maybe particularly in the Arab world. Not that, I would say not the Muslim that, world. Not that, yeah, Pakistan's part of the Arab world. Um, but I think in the interview, he says like, you know, not, not just, you know, among Muslims or in the Islamic world. He thought that that was sort of a wider held sentiment. Um, oh yeah, I think I think that's definitely true, and I I don't think it's necessarily tied to, in all cases, to people being like bloodthirsty or whatever. But they, you know, for a lot of places, America was considered a major oppressor, and so mm -hmm. when you see something bad happen to someone who has been causing you pain and trouble and potentially killing people and so forth for a long time, um, there is a degree to which people find pleasure or satisfaction or like think that that's a good thing where they're like there will be good outcomes from that 
Uh, I think I think most of those people, if you like, really interrogate them about you know, like, and even Changez. I think if you were to interrogate him about like the specific person who died mm-hmm. in nine eleven, who was working in the twin towers that day, he 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 would be like, no, like that was obviously bad. Um, but just like his gut reaction is, yeah, it's like, like America thinks they're so great. <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean, part of this, I think, it is relevant that he's he's in Manila on this business trip, and he starts feeling more like closer to the locals than he does to his colleagues. Because his colleagues, and this is, this is related to sort of unique features of the Philippines' colonial history because it was an American colony. Mm-hmm. And so Americans are kind of like the top tier of foreigner uh, and are treated with a great deal of deference. And it's easy for the Americans to just like, like all of his colleagues start taking advantage of that. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of cutting to the front of lines and demanding things and whatever else. And... Uh, it, this sort of thing, he, he first noticed this behavior on the trip to Greece with these sort of wealthy Princetonians mm-hmm. who, um, you know, were also very demanding of the Greeks and not very respectful to elders and all this kind of thing. Um, and anyway, it's, it's a pattern he notices over time, but I think it really rubs him the wrong way a lot in Manila. And then right afterwards, he sees the, the Twin Towers come down. Yeah, I think in Manila, initially, he's like, because he's noticing this happen, like he, he's really leaning into his sort of American identity um and like when people ask him where he's from he says oh i'm from new york city right. um but then he has this interaction with i think it's a cab driver it's a GP he, driver yeah yeah he feels like uh, you know the driver is staring at him <laughs> and you know he has this like stare down contest uh with the driver and it you know it gets him to thinking of you know feeling like uh what is his place in in manila in this other country that um right yeah, and, and, and the driver clearly views him as a foreigner. He, you know, he sort of lumps him in with the obnoxious Americans right. uh, in a way that I think takes Cengiz aback. Yeah. Okay, well, what is there, what else, is there anything else to say about 9-11 within the story or? Um... Uh, I don't think so. Well, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> You know, let's just say to those of you who weren't alive at the time or whatever, it was a it was an important event. And it, yeah, I mean, it, it, was... it is definitely shaped definitely like the last, you know, the last couple of decades of U.S. foreign policy or sort of engagement with the world. It, it's yeah, all I was going to say is it was kind of the, the defining event of U.S. foreign policy for the last like 20 years that pr- mm-hmm. I mean, pr- prior to that, it was the fall of the Berlin Wall and prior to that it was just kind of like the Cold War writ large. Right. So it's one of those things where if you didn't grow up in an era that included those things and you just like can't fully understand what it was like beforehand or what changed. Like, you know, I, I don't really have any concept of what the Cold War was like or what it must have felt like after the Berlin Wall came down and, you know, the whole sort of geopolitical balance of power shifted. But it was, yeah, I think 9-11 was a similarly world historical event that changed a lot of things for a lot of people um should we i guess talk about the relationship yeah this was this was another like this was sort of the unexpected part of the book for me uh <laughs> it's like oh this is maybe a love story mostly more yeah. than anything else like it's yeah. kind of a bildungsroman i don't know uh story threw I mean, me for lots of loops but yeah right, that's that's how the story begins it begins with this trip to this this princeton post-graduation trip to somewhere in greece some island in, in greece and yeah he falls in love with one of his fellow students uh erica 
who seems to reciprocate to some degree. I mean, she likes him. Yeah. Um, and they sort of spend, yeah, they spend a lot of time together in New York. She lives there. Her family's from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's still living with her parents. She's very well off and kind of has access to the elite section of society. So he goes to like art gallery openings and various other kind of events as her plus one. Uh, mm-hmm. And they spend quite a bit of time together. Uh, but ultimately, the relationship fails because Erica had this, her only other relationship was with a like, childhood friend who she grew up next to, uh, who died from cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he got, yeah. oh, lung cancer, that's what it was. So he, so he, he, got, he got young lung cancer very young uh, and passed away. And uh, she basically never got over him and still in love with him. And it still faces a number of kind of like psychological issues and behaviors and traumas related to that. Um, and so over the course of um, Cengiz's time with her, that kind of, that sort of devolves until she ends up being institutionalized and then is implied that she commits suicide at the end of the story. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how it happens. But, um, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. I mean, yeah, so the, for... go, go ahead. I was going to say that, you know, again, just getting back briefly on my hobby horse about this being the reluctant fundamentalist, uh, <laughs> The, the the movie that they made loosely based on this book called The Reluctant Fundamentalist sort of has this, uh, they have a, a pretty small subplot that is Erica and she like had uh, been in a car crash and killed her boyfriend and that was her like deep-seated sort of really. angst about it. Um, <laughs> but like the main thrust of the story in that case is because it's kind of a thriller about like, you know, Islamic terror and, you know, stuff in the Middle East and whatever. Right. Um, right. And so she she doesn't figure prominently, whereas in this book, it felt like, you know, uh, maybe at least half of it was spent him thinking about Erica, talking about Erica. This relationship was, you know, really pivotal. Yeah. And I think you sort of get the sense that like, OK, in this fictional universe, if if things work out for Cengiz and Erica, uh, you know, maybe uh, Cengiz stays in America and, you know, continues to work at Underwood Sampson. And he has this nice, you know expatriate life in america with uh, this american woman uh, yeah but, be, the, the, but the because dissolution... things don't yeah like his disillusionment i'm just gonna steal what you were probably gonna say that yeah his sort of disillusionment with america it's sort of tied to what happens with his relationship with erica and you know the fact that she's uh, like uh, she she cannot reciprocate his uh his feelings for her yeah, which I think is sort of his own fault in a way. Like, he puts a lot into this relationship. As far as we can <laughs> tell, he has no social life outside of Erica, right? He just joins her for her social life. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't make friends. He just works and then tries to spend time with her. And uh, I think, you know, obviously, if you're pouring that much into a relationship, it becomes clear, you know, partway through that she has this issue with this, you know, other guy who passed away and, like, it may not work out. And he just doesn't make any real attempts to, like, move on, just keeps entertaining the idea that maybe they could get married and, you know, run off into the sunset together. Um, And so, of course, it's it's pretty disappointing when it becomes clear that this will never, ever work out. Yeah. I mean, they have have a kind of relationship, but, yeah, he, he definitely invests much more in the kind of fantasy of the relationship that he wants to have with her that 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 never comes to fruition. Right. Um, now, I think I, I have questions about, okay, so <laughs> what do you think, like, Erica represents in the story? To me, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, like, almost like American, like, naivety and privilege. In particular, like, uh, when they go to Greece, she's wearing a Mao, a Mao t-shirt. Yep. Uh, 
and then when he goes to he has this like first time that he goes to her house to meet her parents at her nice like New York penthouse. City Manhattan penthouse. Yeah. And she's wearing a Mighty Mouse t-shirt. So it's almost like this sort of like infantilization or I don't know, lack of awareness um, that I think you maybe get sometimes from having like a very privileged upbringing. Um, and like after, you know, she graduated from Princeton too, right? But she's just living with her parents. She's maybe writing a novella, but can't, you know, the only way she can secure an agent is through a family connection. And there's really no guarantee that it's actually going to go anywhere. And that's not to say that, like, that's necessarily a reflection. You know, plenty of people, you know, do that kind of thing. But it's sort of like, that's, you know, I don't know. Does that? Yeah, I think I think definitely it does. It does represent a slice of America. I mean, I think his mentor, Jim, at the company represents a sort of the sort of like corporate America, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like uh, upward mobility and kind of rapaciousness of capitalism and sort of thing. But he's a he's a shark. Yeah, I, I, I agree that she she does. Yeah, kind of represent naivete. I think to some degree she represents America overall, that his relationship with her and his relationship with the country are very intertwined. Right. Uh, and, and this is is uh, represented to me to some degree by the fact that he has no other relationships in New York City, just her. So all of his access into American society is basically through her as far as we can tell and through work to some degree. Um, but he's, you know, very formal and very old world. I mean, they even call him old world at one point. Uh, and her family is kind of casual. They're new money. I mean, yeah, he, he like there's this whole situation where he's trying to figure out what to wear when he goes to their apartment. There she is with a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. And he had like very carefully tried to select something that was like formal enough, but not too formal and all this kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and then, yeah, once once his relationship with her breaks down, his relationship with the country writ large breaks down. And that's sort of the point at which he, you know, I mean, it's a crisis for him in a number of different ways between 9-11 and her uh, yeah, disappearance and implied mm-hmm. suicide. Um, and so that, yeah, he can't take it anymore and sort of disengages from that world entirely that is dually represented by his job and by her. Yeah. Do, do you think she's a well-written character? Not especially. Uh, <laughs> I think, like... Do, do, you, do you think that's, like, a comment? I mean, you only... You've only read Exit West, um, but yeah, do you think that's uh So I don't I don't remember having any complaints with uh with the female characters in Exit West. I think West. it's I think it's Nadia's like the Nadia, yeah. of the um, protagonist. I thought I thought she was fine. Exit West just is kind of a different novel. Exit West almost reminds me of it's not to the same degree as uh um, the alchemist but it's that kind of like sort of mm. everything's a little bit blurry and vague and you're not sure like where you are or who the people are and so it's yeah. it's sort of dreamlike uh and so the dialogue isn't that specific but i thought that the, like like her dialogue in this book wasn't especially good there were a number of points where i was like really she's saying that or like that's kind of awkward and stilted <laughs> and the, like some of their i don't know some of their back and forth just felt weird um She's also a bit of a trope. There's like this kind of Sylvia Plath, like young aspiring female novelist who like can't get her act together and is like very, you know, like has various kind of mental illnesses. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That, I think that might be a simplification of Sylvia Plath's life. But... No, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't mean that it was aping off of actual Sylvia Plath, but just like the trope that is that yeah. thing. Right. No, no, I think you're, you're right that there's this like the sort of you know she can't get over her heartbreak and so the only the only thing she can do is go and die basically (laughs) 
Okay, um, class in America versus Pakistan, or in America and Pakistan? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how much there's to say about this, but I will say that I think uh, definitely an, an important sort of element of the book, and one of the things that the character of Cengiz reflects upon is um, sort of class, class, and class in both countries. Um, I, we we've sort of talked about this already, but basically Cengiz. I mean, there's there's this interesting interaction between him and uh, Jim, his boss at Underwood Sampson, who also does his like uh, interview when he's uh, interviewing to for the company. Yeah. And his boss, his boss, basically, he identifies with Cengiz because he thinks that you know they're both outsiders. Uh, the Jim character, you know, he had a sort of hard scrabble uh childhood is the first in his family to go to college and you know now he's a shark and you know on the top of the sort of corporate world in america uh and you know he thinks that Cengiz is the same same way and Cengiz really you know he really thrives at underwood samson because he's able to sort of tap into that kind of um like kind of controlled aggression and like uh focus and determination right um side of him uh, but, you know, Cengiz has this interesting sort of reflection on, like, you know, actually, in Pakistan, you know, he wasn't poor. He didn't grow up poor. He didn't grow up thinking himself as poor. Like, right, his family right. had servants. His family had generational wealth. Uh, but the difference is that it's been, like, sort of squandered and diluted over the generations. And now, um, you know, his parents and aunts and uncles, they're, like, working professionals in Pakistan. They're... They're, they're still like part of the kind of upper crust, but they no longer have the money to go along with the sort of social status that they've been able to retain. Yeah, he's got this nice comment about how status declines slower than uh, actual wealth. And so mm -hmm. they're sort of living on, to some degree, like borrowed status, uh, you know, from their illustrious former days. And I think that's, some, that's something that appeals to the character of Chang'e is when he, uh, I mean, specifically when he goes to New York City and starts working at Underwood Sampson is... You know, he starts to think that he can uh, sort of regain the the wealth right. uh, that his family used to have that will, you know, go along with the status that they still kind of have, but but can't really afford anymore. Right. And as this way in which, like, America is this, uh, you know, this land of opportunity in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I mean, I think one one of the like insofar as he deals with class, it is interesting that he only really deals with the elite anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's the brief stare down with like a jeepney driver in Manila, but other than that, you don't like there are no characters that don't come from the elite. Um, they're all kind of Ivy League educated. They're all wealthy. The I don't yeah. I mean, Exit West is obviously sort of the opposite of this, in that everyone is sort of from the the rural international poor, or I guess urban urban poor. Um, but he, I don't know. I, the, the, the book has some things to say about class, but I think it's limited by the fact that it only is, it is restricted to this very small, uh, kind of wealthy elite circle. Yeah. I, I think you get a bit more of this in his, his debut novel, Moth Smoke. Um, so I don't know. I, I think there's some of that in, uh, the rough fundamentals, but I guess, I guess not as much, but I, I do think there's some kind of like through line in his writing um do you have any thoughts about pakistan mark mark was recently in pakistan mark's got first-hand knowledge i mean that's one of the funny things i mean yeah i was reflecting on this because yeah i mean i i live in new york city 
Uh, I went to an Ivy League <laughs> institution. I've been, I've lived in the Philippines and been to Manila a number of times. I've visited Pakistan recently. Despite all those things, like I, I don't really have any comments to make about the overlap because he just doesn't say anything very specific about most things. Um, mm -hmm. His few comments about uh, like Pakistan and Lahore are like, well, they're very proud of their food and you know they they are very intense about their food, which is true. Um, but he doesn't. Yeah, it's just like none of it's very specific to the country. It's a little, I don't know. I've, I've, th there wasn't like anything really that he said that I could like draw out into any further idea. Yeah, there's an article, and I guess we'll include this in the short show notes too. But it's it's basically a criticism of Hamid's work, and one of the things that the the writer talks about is that you know he feels like he has a tendency to sort of flatten out some of the nuances of like Pakistani society, um, and yeah, just uh, get kind of more of the superficial details or like in. Um, in a lot of his books, like, in, you know, Exit West, it's not really clear what exactly, you know, what countries he's talking about or, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I'm like Mark, I'm not a globetrotter, so I've never been to any of these places, any of these countries, but, you know. Okay, uh, work and corporate culture at Underwood Sampson slash America. Is that something interesting? I mean, uh, the the company of Underwood Sampson, it seems like it's it's like a McKinsey, kind of a smaller McKinsey. Yeah. I mean, McKin McKinsey is a big place, right? Yeah, McKinsey is very large. This is like maybe a boutique version of McKinsey. But really, like, yeah, the interview style with like the case study and like throwing him for a loop by being like, what if it was a teleportation device? Uh the like the traveling to projects, the structure of the projects and the teams on the project that you get like a VP and then some analysts. Um, that like the outcomes, a lot of their projects are just, like laying people off, um, the like prestige, uh, the competitiveness, even like the salary is basically accurate. It's like 80,000 a year for starting analyst out of undergrad. Anyway, it, it's just sort of a fictionalized McKinsey is sort of sure. my conclusion here. Now, you know, again, Mark has a, at least tangential personal experience. Mark worked at Deloitte briefly or not briefly for a little bit. And like, there, yeah you know people that work at McKinsey and stuff sure. like that so yeah did it what do you feel like it was almost like a parody of that like sort of corporate culture or pretty accurate reflection of uh, no, like how things accurate. are run yeah uh, i mean it, it's it's competitive there's an upper out model where if you like some basically if you're not going to get promoted you get fired uh, yeah. you can't just sort of stay it, at your level there's some um, there's like a whole like ranking system yeah in in, in the fictional company that's like Every I don't know, it's like every quarter, every employee is ranked, and you know, Chengiz comes out on top. Right, so he's you know, first both in his times class. He's ranked. Um, he goes through a very intensive training process. It's like a little bit exaggerated, I think, on both of those fronts. The ranking, I think, isn't usually as strict. Although, again, this is a smaller firm, um, and the I forget how long he says he spends in training, but it sounds like a month or two, um, which yeah, I think is I think a little bit. Like I, I think that's a little bit longer than is typically spent. But yeah, I mean, it's it's true that anyway. More or less, what he describes is an accurate depiction of what working at a place like that is. Yeah. Uh, well, so that's good. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, think, I, think... I, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess for 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 me reading it, um, you know, I have no, I have no real insight into like how a McKinsey like company is run, like in evaluations, uh, in evaluations firm, um, and you know, from what sort of limited that I know, it seemed like it could be accurate. 
but also maybe like uh you know in some ways like an over exaggeration because i think it's supposed to be a kind of critique of that sort of corporate stru structure and that kind of like hyper capitalism you know that's represented by a company like that and like you know the projects like he does three projects he goes to the philippines to manila to like work with a music uh, company like production company he, then he goes to new jersey for like a cable company and he talks about like you know getting all this hostility from employees because basically he's there to cut out as many of them as possible and then he ends up finally in chile and he has this kind of disillusioning experience in chile where uh you know he basically at the end of that trip um he decides kind of Bartle bartleby-ish like i'm just not gonna work anymore and uh you know that's it for him at the company yeah. um i was gonna say the hostility they experience that sort of thing does happen like his tires get slashed regularly in the parking lot of one of these one of these companies so uh, I think those those sorts of incidents do happen. That's not unheard of, but they're not common enough. Like he, he makes it sound as though like the three cases he was on, they call them cases, sorry, the three projects he was on, mm -hmm. they being McKinsey, uh, the three projects he was on were all like restructuring, letting people go, which is like a bit much. And then also that like there was host like significant hostility from the employees at all of them. And I think that's uh, maybe not a representative sample of projects, but it's also not impossible. Like you could very easily talk to someone in the real world who has a more or less comparable experience. Yeah. I would be curious. I'm sure there's more information about this, like available in interviews or whatever, but like, uh, uh, Mohsen Hamid, he worked for, um, you know, he worked for McKinsey for quite a while, I think. Um, yep. Or for, you know, a fair number of years and he's Couple currently or, possibly currently working for a brand consultancy so it's not like he's like totally gotten out of that world yeah he's definitely so, not like an anti-capitalist here yeah i mean there's a <laughs> there's a certain Fully way in which the capitalism. reluctant fundamentalism is a it's it's a kind of critique of like capitalism or hyper capitalism but you know the author himself is like you know still connected to that world which i think is interesting yeah um so the next thing we're going to talk about the final thing we're going to talk about I guess. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the ending and uh, the relationship between Changes and his uh, American interlocutor. Um, what do you have to say about this, Mark? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an interesting. We, we know very little about his interlocutor other than what uh, Changes tells us. Um, it seems pretty clear to me that this guy has a gun uh and is an american like operative of some kind there's lots of like fun little like oh i notice you holding your arm out as though you know you have something under there or there is a distinctive bulge that in the members of our security services indicates that they're carrying a sidearm yeah. uh but then being like but of course i'm sure it's just your very large wallet sir uh so uh, at least at least in my reading, it's clear this guy has a gun, he's armed, and, uh, you know, you get the sense that Cheng is at some point, based on what he says relative to what the guy is theoretically saying back to him, um, that this guy's traveled around a bunch, uh, he's ex-military, um, and he's there for some reason. And then Cheng there's a bunch of, like, really ominous stuff where he's like, oh, well, like... 
on tonight of all nights blah 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 or like like, he like apologizes for like referencing of a firing squad he's like far be it from me like like i know i shouldn't you know is an ill omen for me to reference it on tonight but there was a firing squad blah 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 blah. um anyway there's he he like says that like they're gonna come to some kind of ominous conclusion and it's not clear i think whether chengiz is going to be like rendered by the american or something or whether Cengiz has like a team of people that are going to attack the American because he's like a terrorist now. Well, like now that you say that, I I feel like throughout the uh, throughout the story, it's Cengiz who has like the power in the relationship. Yes. Right. It's like uh, okay, so you know this is all just uh, hypothetical, but like Cengiz maybe knows he's being tracked by this American. And instead of waiting to be confronted, he confronts him in this cafe and he sort of turns the tables on him. Um, and, you know, he's the one that, uh, I don't know, does that make sense? Like he initiates yeah. the contact there. Uh, but it's unclear. I mean, it, it seems likely that the reason he's maybe being tracked by this American is uh, because of what he sort of intimates about his uh, involvement in anti-American protest. At the very end of the book, he specifically references having led, like, student protest against... uh, uh, They, like, protest uh, a visiting American ambassador at their campus, and he ends up in jail after one of these protests. it's you know it's not like super specifically laid out and it's a very brief brief part of the book at the end of the book yep but he has some you know he's and he sort of portrays himself as being or having become a sort of mentor to the sort of young and misguided of his uh campus um i think i i agree that he seems to be in charge i think there's kind of an interesting choice that he seems superior in most cases like I mean, he is on his own home territory, but he's like very, very well spoken in a way that it's highly unlikely his interlocutor is. Um, He is very perceptive. And that's one of the things he talks about is that like Jim, his mentor, was able to read people. And he's like, I also am able to read people. I'm a really quick study and can sort of tell who they are. And then over the course of the night, he like reads a bunch of things about the American. He's like, oh, I can tell you're ex-military. Oh, I can tell this. I can tell that. Um, He's like very, you know, knowledgeable. He's very polite all this kind of thing. And so it you do have the sense that like he is better than America insofar as I think a lot of the relationships about his relationship with America or a lot of the the stories about his relationship with America through corporate culture or through Erica or whatever else um he seems set up as a figure who is like maybe I don't know what the quite the right word is better than superior but he you know sort of is we we don't hear anything from the unnamed american right so we don't know what kind of like questions or what kind of behaviors he's he's actually performing um because it's all just you know Changez's reactions to whatever the american is doing or saying um but yeah one certainly gets the sense that like the american is sort of out of his depth and Changez is you know sort of educating him but also maybe sort of putting him down for his you know ignorance of uh, Pakistani and uh, Lahori. I don't know, is that the correct term? Uh, the culture of Lahore. <laughs> sure, yeah, Lahori. I think he refers to it that way. I don't really know myself. Yeah. Um, so, so something else that I was thinking about um, that didn't honestly really occur to me until you know, I was kind of creating notes for the episode is the question of whether Chang'e is a reliable narrator for his story. Mm. 
Uh, okay, so like at at the beginning, he his like opening dialogue with the unnamed American. You know, he says, "Do not be frightened by my beard. I am a lover of America." And you know, it's a sort of from the get go, it's a sort of disingenuous. You know, because at this point in his life, he, he's, he's maybe not a, so much of a lover of America, but he's trying to he's sort of put the American at his ease and say, you know, oh, I <laughs> spent time in America. I had these, you know, these positive experiences. Um, but does that actually reflect, you know, how how he's thinking about the country and this unnamed American now? Maybe not. And then there's... Yeah, he's... He is, I mean, maybe it's related to him being like such a polite person that he's sort of one way to one way to articulate politeness is that it is often untruthful, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that politeness <laughs> involves like not telling people the blunt, honest truth so that you don't hurt their feelings or whatever. Uh, and I don't know, I, I, I could see those sort of things being kind of hand in hand in his personality. Yeah. Okay. But what I do want to talk about is in terms of him being a potentially unreliable narrator is there's this other part later on in the story that I picked up on just before we started recording. So it, there's this long passage, and I'll, I'll read it because I think it's, um, I don't know, it, it really strikes me thinking about, you know, whether we can really trust Cengiz and how he narrates his story uh, to, this to this unnamed American. So he says, To be honest, I cannot now recall many of the details of the events I have been relating to you, but surely it is the gist that matters. I am, after, tell, after all, telling you a history. And in history, as I suspect you, an American, will agree, it is the thrust of one's narrative that counts, not the accuracy of one's details. Still, I can assure you that everything happened, for all intents and purposes, more or less how I described. So it's that kind of like prevarication of, okay, maybe what, the story that I've been telling you up to this point, and this happens like pretty late in the book, um, maybe it's not all exactly how things really happened, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is what happened. This was my experience in America. You I, know, there this weren't is any why... details to me that read like they would have been embellished. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, but it's hard to, I don't like know. Maybe they're... him being number one in his class, maybe he was number <laughs> two and he's like trying to like talk himself up, but like. Uh, there, there's not like an obvious motive. I, I guess that's part of the problem is we don't understand the context of their conversation. And so it's hard to imagine, like we don't know what the motive would be for him to like say something that isn't true. Yeah. I mean, I don't, in terms of like the story itself, I don't know that I can like point to anything in the story that's like, oh, he's obviously like lying about this detail in his life, you know, in this, <laughs> in this fictional story about his life. But I, I do think there are like certain like in that passage there are certain examples where like as a reader i think you're made to question or you're um you're being sort of pushed to question whether Cengiz is an entirely reliable narrator i also think it's a thing where like i think he's a pretty likable character yeah right for the story i mean not you know i felt that yeah, way i think that's true he, uh, but he but feels if, like if he's he sort of comes out yeah but, you know, if he comes out and has this whole long passage about, well, you know, the story that I'm telling you may not be, like, strictly 100% totally accurate, but, you know, it's basically the story of my life, uh, more or less, for all intents and purposes. You know, one sort of wonders, well, is he sort of telling half-truths, or maybe he's sort of downplaying his involvement in these protests, or what these protests were about, you know, you know that sort of thing. Yeah. 
No, that that's true. I think the that's probably the main part that he would downplay potentially is like because the stuff mm-hmm. about his career is like relatively innocuous. The stuff about Erica is just kind of specific to him, and then he's pretty open about how he feels about nine eleven. And so like. I don't know why he would embellish that unless he actually like jumped up and down and shouted for joy and then just told us he felt kind of happy. Um, but right. I think the, yeah, toward, uh, towards the end where he's talking about his activities in Lahore, maybe they're, I mean, if anything, it feels like he could just be skipping things. Like it could be also the like, in addition to being a university lecturer, I like started a Muslim brotherhood underground ring. Like <laughs> he just wouldn't say that. Sure. Or, you know, to sort of get back to, you know, our, our earlier discussion about the title of the book and, you know, the fact that uh, at least from the details of the book, you know, there's no way in which he's really a fundamentalist, at least not a, you know, not a Islamic fundamentalist. Um, but, you know, maybe that's because um, what he's choosing to tell the American about isn't, you know, sort of his story his whole story yeah, that's true i think there's this weird like assuming that we're right that the guy that uh he's talking to is sort of there to target him like he's a cia agent or something um then like i guess i'm confused by the author's choice because either he's not a really vi- like if, if truly all he's done is the stuff that he tells us about then he's not a viable target for the u.s government right like, like mm-hmm. giving one TV interview where you like criticize U.S. foreign policy and then like attending a protest in Lahore is like not enough for the CIA to like render you. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, if I, he I has guess. actually done something much, much worse uh, or much, much more, you know, sort of like kinetic, then and, and there is a reason for the CIA to go after him, then it seems like a weird authorial choice not to tell us that and to just like leave it out. Because then it sort of like misses the, like, that's the missing link in the logic for why this whole thing is happening. Do you remember, who was the American, um, he was killed in Yemen during um, Anwar Obama's prison. Al-Aki, yeah, that's who I was trying to think of. So, yeah, but... I mean, I, I was just, just thinking about this. Right. I mean, it, the, the details around that are sort of sketchy, but one of the reasons that he was targeted is that, you know, sort of, incitement to yeah. violence by like basically encouraging attacks on america now like in in the in the story you know chengay's doesn't you know he he's not doing any of that but again maybe that's because the version of his life that he's telling this unnamed american isn't the full story or there you know there are things that he is actually involved with um that sort of happen off page yeah i just like what he does in the story giving a tv interview is not enough so my 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 there my this is kind of my point is there like plausible stories you can tell as to why the cia would go after him but those stories are not in the text and so i guess i'm saying it's confusing maybe a better way to phrase this is like what could possibly be the author's like why did the author choose not to include Mm -hmm. his like the real rationale for going after him assuming there is one yeah that that's a good question i don't i don't anyway know. i guess I, I i would have liked more information as as a reader um <laughs> you you want a more satisfying no no i i don't need a i don't need a final conclusion that's satisfying i'm not asking for the end of the book to be uh, clear i'm asking for the rationale want... for the u.s government to be chasing this guy down to be clear um and and, and and if the answer is it is like totally arbitrary then there should be some 
greater indication than that. Although I would kind of object because people aren't like totally arbitrarily chosen, right? Like, like there is a reason, even if it's a bad reason. And I think he could have done something interesting with it being a bad or maybe an ambiguous reason, something like Anwar al-Awlaki, where he, uh, you know, became this really famous online anti-American sort of radical Islamist preacher. Like, okay, that I feel like that's an interesting take, but that's not the take that we have. Yeah, I guess we'll just never know. You know? We'll never know. We'll never know. Do you have any final thoughts, Mark? Uh, I mean, this, this is the wrap-up wrap up period. Let's get this shit done. I'm tired of talking about this book now. I hate it. Um, <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a good book. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I guess we didn't nice get to short. that. So Mark, Mark and I, usually we like talk a little bit about the book before we record, and we sort of get a sense of like how we feel about it or like what is interesting about it. I don't know. I did write a, a pretty long outline for the podcast, but yeah. So your take on it was that you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. It was it, it was a good book. Um, I think it was not an insight into fun. Anyway, <laughs> it, it, if you, I think it was my expectations were different than what it was, but for what it was, it was a good book. And I think I actually liked it better than Exit West. Yeah. Um, if, I think he was you, a more compelling pet character and it was nice and specific, but he, he's very charming. He's a person that you enjoy spending time with mm-hmm. and he has an interesting story to tell. And so it is like you just stumbled into this cafe and there's this really interesting guy who lives an unusual life and has interesting things to say and you could just talk to him for a while. Yeah, I mean, because of the story structure, it 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 feels like uh, Chengiz is talking to you directly. Yeah. Um, and I thought I thought it was actually really good on audio too. The reader had a great oh, like kind of South Asian British accent. That's because it was it, like, uh, it was Hamid. <laughs> oh really? That's who it was. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't know I, he read it. I believe he narrates all his books. Um, oh, good for him. Yeah. Yeah, well, even even more so then. Uh, yeah. he, he really embodies the... That's surprising. He was a very good reader, and authors usually aren't that good of readers. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think you, you've sort of picked that. If you hear him interviewed, he he speaks... Um, oh, he's a good intervie- interviewee. Um, but yeah, I was, I was sort of surprised to learn that too, and uh, I'm always pleased when the author reads it and does it well, because I think... Uh, I think generally I would say authors shouldn't read their own books because a lot of them suck at it. Yes. He does not. (laughs) And it's sort of satisfying to get an author that uh, can can read their own work and sort of embody it and uh, do it well. Yeah. Yeah. I think he did did a great job. And it does. Yeah. He brings the character to life and it's good on audio because it's just a conversation. So it really feels in that case like you're just listening to someone talk uh, in a cafe or something. Yeah. Well, okay, uh, on, on that note, anything else to say? Anything else to add? So, how many episodes do you want to do of this podcast before we shut it down? Hello again, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Champs at the Lit. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks also to West Braver for creating our theme music. You can find his work at West Braver on TikTok and Instagram. So in three weeks' time, we will have another episode of Champs at the Lit. We'll be covering the book Heaven by Mako Kawakami. Um, Heaven is a difficult book, a difficult subject matter. It deals with uh, two uh, young people, middle schoolers, who are facing a kind of 
unrelenting bullying campaign by their fellow students. And the book is a it's a kind of Nietzschean meditation on the nature of sort of good versus evil, and also the sort of the question of uh, whether uh, the bad things that happen to us in life, whether they have any meaning or should have any meaning. Um, so it's a sort of philosophical meditation wrapped up in a kind of school drama. And uh, please check that out. Uh, please also be warned that it does get uh, disturbing at times, but both Mark and I think it's a good book and worth uh, consideration and discussion. So please join us again. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you.